0: All right. Well, welcome to another exciting episode of Jackman Radio. This is a very special day and a special interview for us. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, Fresh off announcing his campaign that he will seek the Democratic nomination for president in 2024, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announced in Boston yesterday, and he's joining us here today in Manchester, New Hampshire. Mr. Kennedy, honored to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this this is great. So... Yesterday was the uh, I'd call it historic. It was a historic launch to your campaign, and it's going to be insurgent. It's upshot. It's uh, renegade. And, and like I was saying before we were starting, it's uh, you just your launch yesterday had a had a, a retro feel to it, uh, old meets new, and, and it's exciting. So, tell me how you're feeling about after yesterday's announcement.
1: I was I from our point of view, it went really well. Um, It was, uh, you know, we got, we had, we had a crowd there. We were oversold. We had 1,100 people in the hall, and then we had two adjoining halls. That fit about 500 people each. And um, so there was a lot of good sort of mojo and uh, a lot of good feelings.
0: Yeah, yeah, I got got great energy from it. And, uh, you know, your wife was there and and your children, and just, there was, it looked like a great, mix of people in the crowd. So, I mean, I know it's it's early on, but what kind of feedback have you been getting from close friends and family and advisors about, you know, making this run? And, and really, how long ago did you say, you know what, I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to actually run?
1: Um, actually, you know, Jeremy Zogby, who's a pollster, was one of the big pollsters, started putting my name in polls um, about a, a year ago. And I didn't know it. I didn't know Jeremy at that time, and I don't know why he actually did it, but my numbers were very, very strong, were shockingly strong. And at some point at the beginning of last spring, he contacted me, and he said, I need to show you these. And so he came to me, and he said, uh, you know, and I looked at the numbers, and it looked like, it looked like my, you know, my, my numbers were strong. And that's one of the reasons, that's one of the, you know, things that made me feel like this was not just a... I think they... I, actually, that convinced my wife. Yeah. Because <laughs> she... You know, there, there's reasons for me to be... Because I've been censored for so long. Yeah. There was, There's a good argument for me participating in a campaign, um, even... If, you know, if I had a chance to join the debates, and also there's, there's laws that make it so that you can't, that, that the networks, the airwaves, can't censor you. They've got to give you equal time. It would have been the first time that I could talk, you know, honestly to the American people rather than be characterized and mischaracterized. So there was an argument for me doing it uh, the campaign even if there was no chance of winning but my wife would never have gone for that and I think those polls convinced her that there was actually a you know a realistic path to the White House.
2: Yeah and I really like too in your announcement Mr. Kennedy, how you said um, you know when you announced that you were going to be running uh, one of the chief uh, platforms is to end state and uh, corporations. And their merger that they have together yeah, for the power, power, and their uh, their, their never-ending, uh, non-stop wars that they have.
1: The, uh, well, that you know, that I think that what we're seeing right now is we're seeing a gutting of the American middle class. And we spent sixteen trillion dollars on the lockdowns and got nothing for it. We've spent eight trillion dollars on war, eight point one trillion uh, since the war in Iraq. The war in Iraq. Got us literally nothing. It got us worse than nothing. We pushed, we destroyed Iraq as a nation. We've pushed it under the control of Iran, which is exactly what we were trying to prevent. Uh, We killed more Iraqis than Saddam Hussein. We created a nation that is now riven by uh, Sunni and Shia death squads. Uh, The aftermath of that war, we created ISIS. Yeah. The aftermath of that war was additional wars in Yemen, in uh, Syria, in Pakistan, and Afghanistan. And we drove two million refugees into Europe, which destabilized democracy in Europe, caused Brexit. Those were the cause of that war. That's what we got for $8 trillion. And, but what happens back at home? is that the American middle class is being gutted. We're getting, we're now becoming a nation where there's a, these co- uh, aggregations of wealth, these concentration of wealth at the top that are, uh, that are extraordinary. And then widespread poverty. We have 57% of Americans who cannot put their hands on $1,000 if they have an emergency. A quarter of Americans are hungry. We have 1.5 million vets who are living below the poverty line. And we have 33,000 vets who are homeless, 23 a day who are committing suicide. We have a crisis here at home. Now we're sending $113 million, $1 billion to the Ukraine. Um, the entire budget of CDC is $12 billion. The budget of EPA is $11 billion. <clears throat> and you know and we need to re- we need to have a conversation about this. and we need to have a conversation about you know what's that, whether we are going to try to project military power abroad or whether we're going to try to rebuild America, knowing that the strength of a nation is not in the 800 bases that we have abroad, the strength of our nation is in a robust middle class and a strong economy.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a strong uh, case to be made uh, about the credibility of everyone who sold us the war 20 years ago in Iraq. A lot of those forces are still in power. that want to retain power. Why would we believe them going forward? Um, You know, in your remarks yesterday, you said, obviously a lot of my family works for the Biden administration, but uh, then Senator Biden had a powerful position and he opposed any kind of debate about the Iraq war. Uh, It was actually, I think Lincoln Chafee was the only Republican senator who opposed it and they totally squashed that. So on foreign policy, I think you have an incredibly credible case to make, just uh, even on that one point alone. Uh,
1: And one of the points I made yesterday is that, you know, my, listen, The American people support that war for all the right reasons, because we're good people, we're compassionate people, we see the Ukrainians being overrun by this illegal intervention by Russia. It's a savage and brutal war. My own son has been fighting that war. My son, Connor, went over there to join the Foreign Legion. Really. Um, and he fought as a machine gunner in a special forces movement, a special forces unit in the Kharkiv offensive. Oh, I, you know, I have great sympathy as, which is what drove him there. But we were told originally, we were being lied to by the American government. We were initially told this was a humanitarian mission. A humanitarian mission means going in and, uh, and alleviating the bloodshed and shortening the conflict. But when Biden was asked about our involvement in the war, he said the purpose was to, was regime change, which is the old neocon yeah, you know, trick yeah. that we did in Iraq. Yeah, he's got Victoria Nuland. Yeah, he's advising got as all well. the same A- people PNAC. surrounded by the neocons. And then Lloyd Austin, who is the Defender Secretary, said, yeah, our, our purpose of it there is to exhaust the Russians, to mm-hmm. degrade their forces, so they can't fight a war anywhere else in the world. Well, if that is the objective of this war, that is the opposite of a humanitarian mission, because that's an objective about maximizing the bloodshed. And in fact, the amount of bloodshed, the Ukrainian government and the US government are not being candid with the American people about what's happening there. They keep telling us we are winning the conflict. The, re- the truth is, there are 300,000 Ukrainian troops who have died. Something that the Ukrainian government will not tell its people. Ukrainians right now are being killed at a ratio of eight to one by the Russians. This we know from those recent releases of those, you know, the Pentagon uh, whistleblower. Yeah. Nobody knew that before.
2: It wasn't really talked about that much. I mean, Scott has, Ritter, Ritter has mm-hmm. put out a number pretty similar to what you just mentioned well, that he and thought. His but, numbers are a little higher because they...
1: he's looking at recent numbers, and the the, the Russians now have um, have a artillery advantage. This is an artillery war. My son said, you know, describe this as a artil- total artillery war, although they he had, you know, uh, close-quarter combat shooting matches with the russians but it was a it's an artillery and the russians out a uh, gun the ukrainians by 10 to 1. Oh, the, the number of ukrainians we are basically uh, destroying the the flower of ukrainian youth in an abattoir in ukraine for these geopolitical machinations, which go yeah. back to 2014. And yeah the, the cool. yeah yeah, you know, the neocons have been trying to engineer this war since 2014. Yeah, they overthrew. The, you know, we participated in overthrowing the democratically elected government of the Ukraine that was we regarded as too pro-Russian. We installed Victoria Newland, handpicked the members of the cabinet for the yeah. new government in 2014. Right, and,
0: Robert, and, and, Kagan's, Robert Kagan's wife. Yeah. So that's PNAC steering the ship. Exactly. The crew. And you, you took a shot across their bow in a recent tweet. You named <laughs> I, them. Their new American century is, uh, Ukraine is a death rattle of that. Exactly. Yeah, they're throwing
2: people into a meat grinder, and they're like, oh, till the last person. I mean, that's that's like, that's like. Yeah, it's a I the last Ukrainian. Yeah. Well,
1: and there's 80,000 Russians who have died, too, well, and that's something well, you know, we exactly. should be happy We have about. to look
2: at it from the Russian people and the Ukrainian people, and not just as a jingoistic thing where we have to hate a country. Or Yes, the leaders are corrupt and they do bad things, but think about the anti-war movement in Russia. They get locked up and no one ever sees most of them again, right? I mean, right. I feel for them, too. Um, but what I would like to see is something like what happened in 1962 when your father met with the, amb- the Russian ambassador, kind of back-channeling at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and... Was able to talk and work things out. Yeah, we
1: need more of that. And I mean, that's very relevant to this because the way that they solved the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was threatening to escalate into a shooting war, was that my uncle and my father secretly negotiated a deal with the Russians to remove the, the the Jupiter missile sites. On um, Turkey, so we had installed nuclear missiles in Turkey, and they and the Russians said, "Well, if you're going to have them on our border, the Russians have been invaded twice in the last in the last you know 150 right. years, yeah. and they're very sensitive to having hostile forces at their border for good reason. I'm, We've never been." How would we feel if
2: China put missiles in Mexico yeah. aimed at us well, we like, or something like that, Mexico right? In a minute. And particularly yeah. if they were killing
1: you know American expatriates, which is what was happening in the— Yeah. The Ukraine was killing, you know, ethnic Russians. So they killed fourteen thousand of them.
2: It's a complicated situation. Is the it's point? It's complicated, yeah. people and want it black and, and white. From a
1: geopolitical point of view, the worst thing that we want to do is push the Russia closer to China. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we also, from a geopolitical standpoint, we, we don't want a nuclear war. And they don't even
0: see that. That's the big, that's the big picture that I am always yeah, getting at. And that's, yeah, it is a proxy war that's happening
1: right now. It's a proxy war between that. two great powers. And the Ukraine is being ground animated. into dust. Yeah, by you know by uh, by, the, by these neocon ambitions for world conquest. And you mentioned Secretary
0: Lloyd Austin. Um, he he also what I see is I, I view Raytheon steering the ship largely in what's going on because he was a former. Yeah, he was the chairman of Raytheon, if I remember correctly. So yeah, uh, to in Raytheon, General Dynamics, all of them. I mean, big.
1: They're doing oh, really so well with this. Well, we're with putting this. $113 billion there,
0: and that money yeah. is really just well, bouncing it's, back. It's, to it's, a money, Thion, it's Ron Paul right? called and, the money laundering operation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a is what it is. It's a grift in, in the money laundering operation. Um, so, you know, I know part of why you're running for president is to to move away from that, to move away from putting people like Austin running the Defense Department. So what would your process be to vet people and and pick people to have around you. So we wouldn't have quagmires like this and we wouldn't have Raytheon's interests ahead of the American people's interests.
1: Well, you know, the the, the, the spear tip of this corporate capture of the federal government happens at the agency level. So it happens, as you point out, you know, it's usually industry friendly people and safe people who are put in charge of these. Now, you know, our presidents always run on, I'm gonna drain the swamp, I'm gonna get rid of the swamp. But they see these big, sprawling bureaucracies once they get in there, and they don't know how to change the culture, and they don't understand them, and they don't want to go in the weeds, and they have other priorities. So they put somebody who is safe running those bureaucracies, and that means usually somebody from industry, somebody who won't make waves, somebody who will keep everybody in line. Rex Tillerson. Yeah, or, like Rex Tillerson at the State Department. Elliot
2: Abrams or Mike Pompeo. Or Scott Gottlieb,
1: Scott Gottlieb, who Trump appointed to run, you know, the FDA. Was Trump took a, a million dollars from uh, from Pfizer, yeah, and then that took Pfizer's the... business partner and basically a lobbyist for a lifetime lobbyist for Pfizer, Scott Gottlieb, and then he go, comes in and uh, and you know makes eighty-eight billion dollars for his old company. And then he leaves and goes on the board of Pfizer. Yeah, so that, that's, and that's, that's the way. That,
0: the revolving door
1: of Griffith. Yeah.
2: Was he the fellow who, after you did the panel, or you were going to do the panel during the transition to the Trump administration, you were meeting at Trump Tower, I think that's what that was about. Yeah. And then you kind of got bounced because of that? Or, yeah. or they said, they said well, hey, oh, I mean, here's a million we bucks, we don't want Bobby doing that? Or... Yeah, I mean, what
1: happened is Trump, uh, President-elect Trump, uh, asked me in early January or mid January of 2016 to meet with him at Trump Tower. This was before he was sworn in, yeah. after he won the election. I
2: remember being excited about that. I was like, Bobby's going in with Trump. Yeah. This, this is a real bipartisan, like, these are these are the good things that Trump could do. And yeah, I remember, I mean, I remember I being excited about that. Me, oh, I'm sure. Oh, well, it, was
0: it was the same thing but, that happened to Tulsi. You guys you know, were Democrats and you went and met with Trump when he was president elect. Yeah. and I was excited to see it. Yeah, I was so. Yeah. So, what was that like? I mean, how did that play out? Did Trump call you or his people called you? And and they... Somebody from his staff contacted
1: me and said he was going to call me. And then he called me and he said, you know, he wanted to meet me in Washington. And I was driving at that time. Um, I, I think I was driving in Florida at that time. And he, he said, can you come up? You know, and I think it was January 15th or something. And I went there. I met for a while uh, with Bannon. I met with Steve Annon. I met with, um, with uh, uh, Jared Kushner and then I met with Hope Hill and I met with um, with Donald with uh, Mr. Trump's two sons. And then I went and had a meeting about probably a 45 meeting 45 minute meeting with Trump. And he told me during that meeting that he knew about five people, he knew three women who were in that, who either were in the building then or had been in the building recently, who had children who had been injured by vaccines, who had gotten autism from vaccines, is what he told me. And he said he knew there was something there, he wanted to stop it, and he wanted me to run a vaccine safety commission. And then they, uh, asked me, you know, because I had to go by the press scrum on the way out. And I said, right. do you want me to go out the back like of way? Lobby? And they, they said, no, go down there and, you know, talk to them and tell them what we were talking about. Um, so I did that. And then when, when President Trump got in, he arranged for me to start meeting with some of the agency heads. So I met with Fauci. I met with Collins. I met with uh, Peter Marks, the FDA head at that time. And um, and then uh, President Trump took a million dollars from Pfizer, and appointed Gottlieb and Alex Azar, who were their handpicked candidates, Pfizer's handpicked candidates to run HHS and FDA respectively, and they killed the vaccine safety commission, and the White House just
0: went dark. That was it, and you didn't hear from them then? Yeah. Was that the, the first time you ever met, or had you known Donald for a while? Oh, no, I'd then? met him before. I had actually sued him twice.
1: <laughs> it wouldn't <laughs> be Trump. I, you know what? We're
2: I, still good I, friends, I, though, Bobby.
0: You I can sue me. It's okay.
1: I, the
2: Beatles sued each other.
0: Yeah, I had a,
1: It's okay. I, exactly. <laughs> it's okay. We'll have <laughs> well, a stand I'll uh, send
0: you some Diet Coke.
1: Yeah, actually. Sued my, him twice? <laughs> my wife over Easter vacation, and my wife at that time had said, um, You know, I want to take the kids to Florida. Uh, for, to see your mother on an Easter. And I said I don't want to you know It was only for them the school vacation was only like a weekend And I said I don't want to pay to go to Florida for a school vacation, but and my wife uh, Mary at that time had a lot of very sort of wealthy friends who had private planes yeah. And i um, and she said well, what if I get a free ride down? Will you come and I said okay? <clears throat> and so then she called me. She got. She said I got us a ride down. And I said I said who was home?" And she said with Donald Trump. I said I'm suing him. <laughs> Could and you she imagine? said, she said he knows he knows that. And he said it's okay. He doesn't care. And uh, it was excruciating. It was excruciating.
0: So you flew from New York. Yeah, on I, Trump Force I, I, One yeah down to like uh palm well, Beach. he goes down to Mar-a- Mar-a-Lago yeah. every week yeah he's he's down there he's golfing he's that's dead. incredible so, so, you, you guys were on the jet together and, yeah uh, what, what was that like well i've known him for, you know i've known yeah. him forever so he's always really like the kennedy family he, he, he's been a yeah of the and he's he small yes. of his and you know he's
1: very um amiable and sociable yeah. and i mean he you know that's that's what he's like yeah, I have uh, met him a couple not, times briefly, but you know, he, he's not like a guy that you would go in and say, "That's a terrible mean guy." He's, he's always, fun. Yeah, he's fun. Yeah.
2: Everybody liked me when I was a Democrat, Bobby. I'll tell you that. They <laughs> took my money, they took my calls, but now not so much. <laughs> he, he's a lot of fun. You know, we can say that, right? We can yeah. say he's fun. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he, it's been wild. You know, he's at the, he was at the RNC with Mike Pence. You know, and uh, just talking about all all, all these things and. Um, one the, by the way, I won both of my losses. Oh, you yeah, did. Yeah. So, so did he admit fault, though?
1: They were both about uh, uh, golf courses. He but, was trying to build golf courses in the New York City reservoir watershed. Oh, okay. Was well, yeah, but he was, and he I took I,
2: umbrage with that one. Well, uh, I could see how you could take umbrage with that, you know, given your history with, yeah.
1: the,
2: with you know, preservation. Well,
0: Scotland. He went over and just it, bulldozed it, over there and <laughs> ruined those poor people's uh, community.
2: Yeah, in the they Shut the water off. Yeah, of yeah people's people don't house. realize
0: how horrible that was. They don't really know a lot of but it. it's just a world class golf course, okay? I didn't ruin any waterways, Bobby. I didn't ruin anyone's houses, okay? The people all loved me. They threw roses at me like we were
2: liberators in Iraq. They were crying. They were crying, they, Bobby. They had tears in their eyes. So so the two lawsuits, so what, what after that when you, when you guys talked, did you kind of like hey, good, good, good match, kind of thing. No, or, no, no, no. You may so have won about. I'm not I'm not
1: allowed to talk to him about lawsuit. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I, I, I could lose my that, ticket for doing that. Keep that separate. Oh, okay. So, so we, no scotch afterwards. get Bobby disbarred. <laughs> we can't get him
0: disbarred. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the Ro- real Roger Stone has has been has been. Uh, we talked about other things.
1: Yeah. Roger Stone I guess has. I a movie theater in that. Like, in uh, the uh, I uh, I came in and my kids were watching Pulp fiction, which. That's wild. If you think about Pulp Fiction, you don't remember how bad it would be for a kid to watch oh, it. Oh, Tarantino? But, it's so yeah, bloody and
2: violent. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah the gimp. Yeah. <laughs> Kanye is dressed as the gimp, you know, with the mask. Yeah, yeah but um, yeah, what were you going to say? had to turn gonna... it off. Yeah, geez. Well, yeah, Roger Stone has been
0: throwing your name out there to team up with Trump in an unlikely bipartisan ticket, so... I think
1: that's interesting. But, you know, you— I talked yesterday. I mean, I think I'm the—I am in the best position of any Democrat to run against Trump Uh, because, you know, a lot of things—Trump gets accused of a lot of things, and a lot of them are true, a lot of them are not true. The worst thing that he did was the lockdowns. And nobody goes after him because the Democrats were on board with them. Yeah the damage that those lockdowns did to our country—not only our 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 economy, but our civil liberties. It was, it, you know, the Harvard study by um, Larry Lawrence Summers, and the IMF study both say that the lockdowns cost the United States 16 trillion dollars. This means we we spent 16 trillion dollars on those lockdowns, which we got nothing for. We got we spent eight trillion dollars on the war, which we got nothing for. So we spent 24 trillion dollars and um, on, you know and got nothing for it. And that money comes from the American middle class. Yeah Not only that, but the lockdowns were a shift, the biggest shift in wealth in the history of humanity. It right. was 3.98 but four trillion dollars shifted from the American middle class to the super rich. We created 500 new billionaires. Oxfam came out with a report uh, this week. That said, the the current billionaires who started out as billionaires at the beginning of the lockdowns increased their wealth by thirty percent. Um, you had we had like Musk and Bill Gates. Yeah, Musk, Bill Gates, uh, but you know the guys actually like uh, Zuckerberg and you know and and Bezos. Who were censoring us? So they were censoring criticism of lockdowns while they were raking in the door. Amazon got to close all of its competitors. Yeah, three point three million businesses closed. I'm just in a lawsuit now with you know involving Amazon and Elizabeth Warren. Um, for uh, for censoring one of my books which was a critique of the lockdown so you had the guys who were making billions of dollars from the lockdowns who were able to silence yeah in charge the of the critics. speech and what could be
2: seen and what couldn't be
1: seen exactly and they were you know they were they were making money through censorship zuckerberg we now know during the trump administration was working with the white house to censor people like me yeah and we now know the lockdowns were useless. Like there is paper, scientific study after study. Every comparison that's been done between the, the, uh, the states and nations that did lockdowns compared to those who didn't or did lesser versions has shown that the worst thing that you could do is lockdown.
2: Well, the mental health implications, too, for children, educational implications, I was a substitute. Children,
1: according to Brown University studies, American children lost 22 IQ points, toddlers. And then kids who miss school, now a third of them are going to require remedial education for the rest of their lives. The way that CDC is dealing with this is because so many kids now are missing their milestones, CDC just changed its milestones that we've had for I don't know 50 years. So now, if you're um, if you're, you're a child is expected to walk at 18 months bef- before it was 12 months, and a child should have 50 words by 30 months for, other than 24. We did all this damage to our children, and the way CDC is dealing with it is just by normalizing it. And uh, you know, we had. 3.3 million businesses were shut down. 41% of black businesses um, will never reopen. So, in a lot of these businesses had, you know, three generations of sweat equity, of, of uh, monetary equity in them, and we killed them. Uh, uh, what we did to this country, you know, we, uh, the, the suicide rates, now 20% of teenagers, uh, Contemplated suicide, suicidal ideation during the lockdowns, the alcoholism, the overdose rates. We closed the schools, which were the only source of hot meals for a lot of children. We locked them at home where they can eat potato chips and get fat, which was killing them from COVID. Um, about uh, 24% of teenagers reported going hungry. The only indicia of social deterioration that actually improved during the lockdown was child abuse. The child abuse data, day-to-day data, looked good. It looked like child abuse was was lessening. uh, But that was an artifact of reporting because most child abuse is reported by the schools. And because we closed the schools, they weren't being reported. But the effect was we locked these kids in the homes with their abusers. Fifty-five percent of teens, now that CDC acknowledged, reported being abused, and thirteen percent reported being physically abused. So, oh, you know this is—we oh, we made war on the poor in this country. We made war on the middle class. We made war on our children, and it was Donald Trump who you know, was in charge.
2: He didn't fire Fauci either. He could have. Oh, he, 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 brags about he firing did not him.
1: have the ability, either the discipline or the patience, to stand up to his own bureaucracy. He knew what he was doing was wrong. Uh, but he was not able to stand up to his bureaucracy. And you know, this is the story I told yesterday. When I was talking about this issue, my uncle in 1962, uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Thirteen of the, or eleven of the thirteen uh, men on the XCOM committee, which was the committee that was advising him of what to do, they were all of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the intelligence officers, et cetera. They all said, "You got to bomb the missile sites in Cuba." And my uncle said to them, "Who did not want to do it?" He said to them, "Are they, are they Cuban crews or are they Russian crews?" And the CIA didn't know. And my uncle said, if those are Russian crews and we kill them, isn't Russia going to go into Berlin? Hmm. And they said, well, oh, we, we don't think so. Is what they told him. And he said, who has the authority to fire from those sites? Is it Castro? Is it Khrushchev? Or is it the gun crew commanders? Or the individual 65 guys, 64 guys, who if they feel threatened can, can, uh, can fire those missiles. The CIA didn't know. It turned out that's what it was. The, the missile commanders had authority to fire. We would have had an all out nuclear war. Oh,
2: it would have totally escalated. It and would have
1: killed 30 million Americans. And I love after that,
2: President Kennedy said, Victory has a thousand fathers, but defeat is an orphan. Yeah. And, and, to, and took it in stride, even though he really got set up on that. I mean, he. The pl- well, that was the. Ba- that was oh, the oh, I'm sorry, yeah, Bay that's the Pigs. Bay of Pigs, I which mean, happened in 61. 60. I confused 61, that. Yeah, yeah. The,
1: the 62, the but, missile crisis. Uh, but you know the lesson from that is that you need a president who's able to stand up to his bureaucracy because all of these bureaucracies are captured. Yeah. The CIA, <laughs> my, my uncle discovered in what, in, during that episode of the Bay of Pigs, was their function. It, they have been captured by Raytheon, by General Dynamics, by the military contractors, the military industrial complex. A helicopter at that time. And, and their their function is to provide a constant pipeline of endless wars to devour all this equipment. The, the CDC is captured by pharma, NIH and FDA are all captured by pharma, EPA is captured by the oil industry, the, the, uh, the chemical industry, pesticide industry. When we sued Monsanto in discovery, we found all of these emails that showed the head of the pesticide division for you know almost a decade was a guy called Jess Rowland who was secretly working for Monsanto? So you had. It's like a mole. <laughs> yeah, and he's the top guy. He's,
2: yeah, right. He's, he's the one who's supposed to be. Right. So the he, what that... he
1: was doing, he was killing all of the studies that showed that Monsanto, that you know, Roundup was causing cancer. And his job, and he said, "I'm going to kill this." That there's another agency called ATSCR, um, and uh, that is not part of EPA, and they wanted to do a study on Roundup and cancer. And he had no authority over those agencies, but he said to Monsanto in one of his emails, "I'm going to kill this, but if I succeed, you're going to have to give me a gold medal." Well, that was the kind of you know conversation. So these guys, they, the DOT is captured by the rail industry. That's why you know I'm representing 600 people whose lives have been upended and destroyed in Columbia, Columbia County, and East Palestine because of that that wreck. Um, and that wreck happened because of agency capture. The DOT is captured, or the USDA is captured by Smithfield, Tyson, Cargill, Monsanto. The you know the agricultural complex, which is poisoning our food and giving us making us eat all this GMO food that doesn't have nutrition in it. And it's all agency capture now. Most presidents, when they come in, they promise they're going to end this, but they do not want to go in the weeds. They do not know how to deal with these agencies, but I've been litigating against these agencies for 40 years. I've written books about them. I understand the culture. I understand, I think think all the time, how do I fix this agency? How do I fix this culture? I know the individuals in many cases who are causing the problems. Most of the people who work for these agencies are fantastic people. Yesterday I talked about my, uh, my daughter-in-law, Emerilis Fox, married to my son Bobby, who spent her entire career as a spy for the CIA, as a clandestine agent in the Mid-East, in the weapons of mass destruction, horrendously dangerous work that she was doing. And she is the most idealistic patriot that you could, and brilliant patriot that you could possibly. She's now helping to run my campaign, Dennis Kucinich. And, you know, what she'll tell you is that of the 22,000 men and women who work for the CIA, most of them are patriotic. Um, they, are, they are wonderful public servants, they are idealistic, they are honest, um, and, but the people, and that's the same with NIH, CDC, EPA.
2: All the organizations,
1: all the, all the, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. The people who work there are good Americans. And they're normal but people. The people. The corruption
2: who, at the top. I it mean, got, the people yeah. who tend
1: to get the, long, the jobs, like Anthony Fauci, who well, has 50 years there, the way they do that is they're in the tank with pharma. I can Absolutely. name you, yeah. the, the I can name you people at NIH like Bernie Sadie, John Anthony Morris, so you know, Judy Mikovich. These are the people, the most honest scientists at CDC at, um, at NIH, and they were punished. Bernie is one of the most famous scientists in American history. She's discovered that there was a, a cancer virus in a polio vaccine and alerted the agency and her lab was taken away from her, her her locks were removed from her door, her telephone was removed. This is what happens if you stand up to industry within those agencies.
2: You tell the truth and and, and a lot of the heads of these organizations, including the media, don't like it when you tell the truth and you've said one of the biggest planks of your campaign is to tell the American people the truth and I th- I want to kind of pivot over because you've probably commented on this we're coming up on 60 years of the assassination of your uncle um I would say most Americans don't believe the official story the Warren report or that Oswald acted alone most or or, or even acted at all but do you see a shift in the media or in kind of the overall consciousness on people being like we were we've been lied to for six decades about this it's time to have a reckoning and you know where where do we go from there cuz uh, do such I a see a lie. shift in the media well, not the, well, yeah, public Tucker Carlson like posted. Well, Tucker.
1: Tucker, well, some media,
2: yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, Tucker is saying things that nobody's ever said before. Yeah, which yeah. is, I mean. But a lot of the media, and, and you I, know, it used to be, we did an article on this, The Defender, how the CIA, you know, it used to be illegal for the CIA to propagandize the American people and it was part of its charter, and they're not allowed to do that. But then, um, and so, but, and then we found out they were doing it illegally in 1973. During the church committee hearings when they released the family jewels, which were all of CIA's big secrets, and we found out that there were hundreds of journalists and editors of major newspapers, including the Washington Post, New York Times, CBS, that were all being run by the CIA. The CIA at that time said, "Okay, we won't do that anymore. We'll stop propagandizing Americans. We're going to continue to do it abroad." So the CIA, through USAID, is the biggest funder of journalism in the world. It has moles in you know every, uh, in you know in every country in in leading journals in every country. But it said we're not doing it in the U.S. Although most people did not question them, did not believe that. Yeah. Uh, but then, during the Obama administration, uh, President Obama issued a national security order that allowed the CIA to once again influence uh, American people by, you know, capturing reporters. So you have um, you have particularly liberal newspapers, and we did, a, you know, an expose on this that people can look at by like Dick Russell and the Defender. Um, that looked at the sort of the major newspapers that are agency-controlled. The Daily Beast is one. Um, Didn't uh, he write the man who knew too much about Richard Case Nagel? John Avalon used to run it, and he's, you know, an intelligence guy. Um, He... uh, uh, Noah Schlackman at Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone used to be a counterculture. They had now. your great
2: article in 06 about the 04 election oh, yeah. that I always cited to people, and they scrubbed that from their website. Yeah, they scrubbed uh, all of my stuff It's like we loved Bobby 20 years ago when you, you know when yeah. we were talking about election fraud, but no, we can't talk about it anymore. And, and even they had the, the E. Howard Hunt thing with his son yeah, in 07, talking about St. John Hunt, calling the assassination a yeah. big event. I mean, oh, yeah. what no, the they hell happened to
1: Rolling Stone? They used to, right. The other ones that you know have the same issue are, uh, Scientific American, National Geographic, uh, Salon, mm-hmm. uh, Daily Kos. You know we've uh, shown how you know a lot of these have direct connections to the intelligence agency. They're all
2: pro-war now. Yeah. yeah, they're all neocons. David Talbot was Salon, right? Did he found Salon. He yeah, found it, and he he founded yeah,
1: Salon. I mean, his book. And Brothers. he was disgusted with it.
0: Now. Yeah. Yeah. He's not in. Yeah. In there anymore. Yeah, because he wrote Brothers there, and he wrote The Devil's Chessboard. Yeah. And those are. Uh, he's those a brilliant are, historian. Those are awesome books. I mean, yeah. I've learned a lot from David Talbot. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, did you did you read uh, um, the Unspeakable? Yeah. Well, that's what my next thing I wanted yeah. to ask you about. Um, so we talked about like good people in the CIA. I had the chance to spend a day on Capitol Hill uh, with Dennis Kucinich, and I happened to run into Ray McGovern. Ray McGovern was there for the day, and um, I was reading JFK and the Unspeakable at that time. And um, I just, I, after the day was over, I, I was on the Metro uh, with with Ray McGovern and just kind of picking his brain about it because he was, you know, the CIA analyst from 1963 to. Nineteen ninety, right? Twenty-seven gave years. Presidential briefings gave all the, the way up to Bush briefings. Senior. Yeah, and and he just uh, he said to me, he said Douglas's work on the Kennedy assassination. Uh, this is Jim Douglas, who wrote the unspeakable, is, which, which is one of the best works, probably this, the best work. Yep, he said it's essential, and um, this is needs to be in the hand of of uh, of every American. Oh, that's interesting that he. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Ray McGovern and uh, I. Point blank asked him. I said, I mean. Maybe you get asked this a lot. Uh, you know, you don't have to say anything if you don't want to say anything. But do you think not the CIA as a whole, but people and elements and black operators within the CIA were involved in killing our thirty-fifth president? And he said, "Yeah, absolutely." Yeah. So, uh, you know, people people who want to know the truth and who want to I want mean, to it's really it,
1: undisputable. The information if you is look, there. The information is not there, and what? Yeah. Unfortunately, what happened is, you know, the Warren Commission, which was run by Alan Dulles, yeah. it should have been called the Dulles Commission, you know, and he wheedled his way on there and oh, yeah. ran and the, whole thing. the CIA.
2: Your father called it a shoddy piece of work or craftsmanship yeah. or something like that? My yeah.
1: father's first instinct was that the CIA had killed his brother in the first all he made was to a CIA station chief, and then he got Macomb, uh, who was the director of the CIA, to come to our home, and he took him for a walk. Well, just when I was coming home from school, you, you know, I don't... was taken out of school to Hickory Hill early that day, and my, well, I was picked up by uh, a driver. That had been sent to get all the kids. There's, you know, at that point, there's uh, you know eight or nine of us, and. Um, we were picked up by different people, by friends, etc. And the, the, who, the person who picked me up did not want to tell me um, what happened. But we saw the flags half-past. Uh, and then my mother told me, you know, Uncle somebody uh, shot Uncle Jack. When I got home, my father was walking in the yard with John McComb, and we ran down to hug my dad. And He was walking in the yard with John McCone, and at that point, he asked John McCone, did uh, did your people do this? And then he called Harry Ruiz, who was one of the leaders of the Bay of Pigs, who was one of the Cubans and the one who was closest to my father. He was one of the, the Cuban fighters. And he had started out fighting alongside Castro. Then when Castro declared his affiliation with the Soviet Union, Harry Ruiz had broken with him, and he was a, he was an engineer. He was highly educated, and he—you um, know—my father had found him a house and gotten his kids into school, and you know he came with us on uh, on ski vacations. He—he he was an affluent Cuban who had been fighting in the jungle with Castro, and then turned on Castro and began fighting against him. My my family had a—you know—some of the Cubans. A lot of the Cubans had turned on my family, but Harry Ruiz stayed very, very loyal. And so my father called him and said to him, "Did you know? Did your people, did our people, do this?" And um, so his first instinct was, that the CIA, had, had killed his brother." He was people wonder, "Well, why didn't he say anything?" You know, after that, the reason for that is that. The, the day he had lost all of his capacity for, uh, for first of all, he was emotionally shattered, and he had lost all of his investigation, uh, investigatorial capacity because he, he uh, J. Edgar Hoover worked for him at the Justice Department. He was Attorney General, and J. Edgar Hoover had thirty thousand FBI agents who technically worked for my father, but after. His brother and J. Edgar Hoover called my father and said, "You know, your brother got shot." Uh, it was, and my father said, "It was." Uh, it, he said it in the same tone as if he had, you know, was telling him that he had discovered a communist on the on the on the faculty of Tuskegee University. That it was just sort of the indifference. My father never had a conversation with him again. J. Edgar Hoover stopped responding to him and stopped returning his calls because he had a direct line to LBJ. Mm -hmm. And so my father no longer had an investigatorial capacity. And if he had started mouthing off about the assassination, you know, um, they had, uh, it it, it would have destroyed him politically. It would have isolated him. It would have marginalized him. And he would have stopped having a voice on the issues that he cared about, war in Vietnam, civil rights. So he kept his mouth shut. A week before his assassination, he was speaking at a university, at a uh, community college in Los Angeles. Normally, the students would ask him, a lot of times he would get asked about the Warren Commission report, and he would never, he would kind of sideways endorse it, or, you know, or uh, he just wouldn't say anything. But this student asked him, this is when he knew he was gonna win the California primary, he knew he was going to Chicago, and he knew he could beat Humphrey because he beat him in the 60, and he knew then he could beat Nixon because he beat him in 60. He knew he was gonna be president. And a student asked him, if you get elected, will you reopen the Warren Report? And if you listen to the tape, there's a long silence, and then he says quietly, yes and thunderous so, applause what? thunderous applause yeah, thunderous yeah applause. i've heard that i've actually yeah. heard that yeah.
2: yeah well i think telling the american people the truth is so important yeah. as, as painful and, and, and ugly as it is and i i just i want to let you know uh, um i've always applauded i've always been very uh, i've admired your your efforts to do that in in the well, face of you. you know it's been inspiring you, to me for the, for a long time
0: yeah we, we were just in Dealy plaza like three weeks ago our second time visiting there and it's still it's still surreal to go there and actually see it because we grew up our whole lives obviously we saw oliver stone's movie when we were six seven years old when that came out and we read about it in history class and documentaries and it was just always this far off like thing that you would never go and see in person and then when you go there it's uh you know it's it's still it's still very moving
1: yeah, I was in Dallas a couple of years ago, and I, um, I went down there for the first time. I just went alone and, uh, and looked at it, and I had the same reaction to it, you know. And, um, uh, and then, a bunch, you know, there are people there who are like, it's almost like there's a constant vigil by people who are thinking about the assassination. So there was a group of those people there i didn't know who they were but i saw a group of people you know, standing kind of a, opposite the grassy knoll there's kind of a place where there's pedestrians and one of them recognized me and, and they all started coming over and i was like uh i didn't you know i didn't want to get in that conversation that's a loss. yeah to see that's, it that's, so that's heavy yeah it's, so it's, i ended up leaving
0: not to make light of it but also when i when i went there i went and walked for the second time i walked over the triple over, underpass, overpass, yeah. and I stood at a vantage point where I feel there could have been a shooter. And all I can hear in my mind is Jesse Ventura's voice: "You mean to tell me one guy did this? Bull <laughs> <Whole> crap!" <laughs> they even
2: have him in the in the museum. They, they have an audio. They have an audio of, of him in the the, the museum. Jesse, yeah, I see. Like yeah the, Ventura. The one lone dissenting voice yeah, that, that they, they allow in yeah, the museum. Yeah, because what did Jesse say, Mike? <laughs> Let it be known that the thirty-eighth governor did not believe the findings of the Warren Report. <laughs>
1: Jesse's <laughs> a good, good man. I want
2: yeah. him in your cabinet, by the way, if you can make that happen. We want Jesse in there.
0: Yeah, he, uh, he, he threw that out there years ago that he always wanted to uh, run for president and have you be part of it. Did you guys ever have any conversations? Yeah, I've, I've I- actually,
1: I've, I, have a, I always have fun with him. I, I met him one time I was in, um, I was in Baja in Cabo. With my kids, and we were just walking on the street, and we ran into them.
0: You ran into Jesse Ventura, and yeah. And we, said, we said, we uh,
1: said, <laughs> I said to him, "Do you want to? we on going scuba diving." I had already got a, you know, I was taking my kids scuba diving. They were only like maybe eight or nine years, and ten, and twelve years old. And um, I. I said we're going scuba diving and i had rented a little boat for the day and i said he want to come with us and he said yeah he must have lived well and he was a navy seal well, so that's was what i was gonna diver. say yeah. bobby
0: i'll teach you some other <laughs> under, underwater demolition <laughs> you can become a frogman man an honorable shield with me bobby
1: man. let's let's do it we'll run together <laughs> yeah. bobby and we'll change the world <laughs> my kids my kids had so much fun with them because he was, my kids were interested in, in professional wrestling oh, yeah. And he was talking about Andre the Giant, and uh, he was talking about uh, who's the other guy, the blonde Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, yeah, no, he really doesn't like. No, me, no, no. him
2: and Vince McMahon but, shut the unions down, Bobby. <laughs> they squashed the union. I tried to unionize, <laughs> and the body didn't like it, and they shut me down. <laughs>
0: but I, I would hope that uh, Governor Ventura would would, would uh, you know support. He's been him. very supportive. Support your campaign. Uh, I mean, I, mean I, I consider him a friend. Yeah, and, he's. He's a Renaissance man. He's done. He's done a lot of cool things. Yeah. He's done. He's. A, he's just. They don't make dudes like him anymore. Oh, it's amazing that
1: uh, that film. Uh, Alien. No, what is it? Predator. Oh, Predator. Oh, oh, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Him well, and Arnold. Or you have Arnold. Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. A well,
0: there's a great. Bizarre
2: guy. coincidence.
1: Yeah. That, uh, I, I know they became governors later.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, is, is that well, Carl
0: Weathers the other guy? He ran for governor. Yeah, but He did Yeah. he didn't win. Yeah. Yeah, he, he didn't win.
2: Another cool uh, anecdote I really loved in your autobiography, Bobby, was about having John Lennon in your living room playing piano with Uncle Teddy. Yeah. Can you, can you, can you give us some insight? Because John's my favorite Beatle. Uh, give, give us a little insight on that story. He was, this was when Nixon was
1: trying to get him
2: thrown out of the country. So like 74, 73? Yeah. Who would have been Well, yeah, no, that,
1: well, let's see. I, I graduated in 72, so it would have been that.
2: Wow. So post Beatles, so imagine that already come out. You're like 18, 19 years old. Yeah,
1: and uh, I had a friend with me from high school. This was at Hickory Hill in Washington, so we were home, I think, for Thanksgiving. And I, um, and Teddy was trying to get. Teddy was the head of the Immigration and Refugees Committees, and so and. They were trying to keep Lennon out of the country because there was a there was a law that Nixon had got passed then about, um, or I don't know whether it was a law or a policy at the immigration office. You could not come into the country if you had a marijuana bus. And he had a marijuana bus. And Nixon did not want him in the country. They thought He thought he was dangerous. <laughs> My uncle was trying to get him in and eventually did get him in. And, uh, so he was at our house that night, because they were in the middle of this kind of battle, and he was in Washington. And uh, and they ended up, you know, they had a few drinks, and they uh, went over to the piano. And the two of them were at the piano. And then Rosie, Roosevelt uh, Greer, who was the, uh, I think, the, he was, the, was he the Dallas Cowboys, the Oakland Raiders, um, I think he was the tackle. Slash bodyguard for your father? He was kind of, he was a friend, and yeah. he was kind of a bodyguard. Well, I mean, he was kind of an imposing yeah. figure, so. Yeah, and, but he, would, he, was a, he had a beautiful voice, in fact he, he had an album um, about, called There is a Rose in Spanish Harlem and that was one of his kind of cover songs wow. that he sang, but he was playing a big African drum with a zebra. Uh, with a, with a, he had a bunch of drums there that they dragged up that my parents had brought home from Africa. Uh, That they dragged up to the living room and he was playing the drums, you know And my father and Lennon were playing uh, on the piano and singing. My uncle Teddy could actually sing pretty well And my friend had harmonica, so he was playing too. I think for him. It was a high point of his his life. Yeah (laughs) That is really. You had so
2: many luminaries there that you talk about even you know from your younger years on people from other countries leaders musicians, athletes, yeah. people in intelligence, people from all the departments. I mean that's that's such a unique perspective to, to grow up with and I think that really contributes to um, the credibility of your campaign as well and what you would bring to the table. The book Mike is
1: talking about, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, it's called American Values. It's
2: a you great know?
0: book. <laughs> Go get it, yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, we, um, that was something we were saying on the right end um, to, to help uh, run your security deal so we could bring in Mike Tyson. Yo, I love Bobby Kennedy. He's a good guy. If anyone gets near I'm going to bite their ears off.
2: Yeah, the hot boxing podcast oh, you did you. with him was tremendous. That was everything. He really he really did his homework for that, for that podcast that you did with him yeah, Tyson. No, I really wanted to do that
1: podcast because I grew up with uh, racing pigeons. Yeah, yeah, he's I all had, about that. Uh, I had Hungarian pigeons from when I was seven years old, training them. Um, we would... Put them on the trains and, and uh from Virginia and ship them down to Delaware. The five hundred mile birds, which are the best birds, we'd send down to Delaware and then they release them all at once and then when the pigeon came back to your coop, you'd take off the little ring and we'd run down and get it stamped at the time stamped to the post office and he had the same experience growing up. He was a pigeon fancier. So I really wanted to talk to him about that. You guys connected on think, that initially. Yeah. But <laughs> even Larry King
0: he, Larry King asked him about it, and Larry King's like, Mike, you, you, you raised pigeons. He's like, yeah, Larry, this has been going on
2: this before Christ. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: biblical. <laughs> that was his first fight. Yeah. A kid killed his pigeon.
2: Oh man! that's probably so didn't go. Well. He, he I knocked him, him out, Bobby. going yeah, someone kill my pigeon. I you... will kill him. You don't mess with my pigeons, Bobby. <laughs> he was like, Honey Fitz was such a handsome guy. Him and him and Jack Fitzgerald had that beautiful dark hair. It was handsome by me at that time I came home and saw Brad Pitt with my wife. I don't know if I want to fuck him or fight him. <laughs> He's very How candid I get on this show. <laughs> I know we got to get we got to get Tyson here to New Hampshire. Yeah, that would it's, be great. We need Aaron uh, Rodgers. Right, I'll work there. on that. You could get Aaron Rodgers and yeah. Tyson for a yeah. You
1: know, I it's
0: Patriots this. country. A lot of people love Aaron Rodgers, <laughs> and I'm, I'm a fan of his. I, I love seeing you guys together, and, and, and him, you know, being supportive. Uh, he's been great.
1: He sent me a bunch of texts yesterday. Yeah, well, that, that's he's what very, I'm saying. very courageous. I,
0: I, I think it's it's going to be an epic coalition that are going to come together for your campaign. Are you feeling that?
1: I think so. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. But I am feeling it now. I mean, we're getting the response we're getting from just every direction has been very encouraging.
0: Right, and no matter what the DNC bigwigs or what they do or what they, they try to do, you're just going to persevere. and you're gonna, It's, it's just... in God's
1: hands. I'm going to tell the truth. If, if people have an appetite for the truth, if Americans have an appetite for the truth, I'll be in the White House.
0: People do. I people think they do. do. I and, think they do. And, yeah, that, that poll that came out, you know, you just, just getting in— uh, Today, Suffolk University poll, 14% of voters who backed Joe Biden in 2020 uh, are supportive of a RFK Jr. campaign, and that's just what
2: this thing just getting started. So. That's just one. Another one has you at 10%. I mean, obviously, the polls are, you know, we, everyone has their thing about polls, but I think well, I think that's encouraging. Yeah,
1: I am I mean, even those polls, which, how is it a strange poll? Because normally you would say, are you a likely voter? Yeah. And are you more like, are you a likely Democratic voter? and are you more likely to vote for you know Kennedy or Biden? But they, they asked the question in a strange way. But then if you read the tabs on that, when they ask people Democrats who did not support Biden, um, they I got 33 percent of them. And those are you know, back at this point, when Biden ran, I think he only hit three percent. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so you know, I'm encouraged by. It, but I, you know, it it's real. I'm going to do what I have to do, one way or the other. I'm going to tell the truth to people. I'm going to try to say things that I'm going to try to emphasize values that unite Americans rather than the issues that divide us. And try to you know talk to both Republicans and Democrats and make them forget that they're Democrats or Republicans and remember they're Americans and you know talk about rebuilding this country.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, there's a huge appetite for that in this country, you know, and, and people are people are tired of how nasty our politics have become, and, and and how just let me cut the next person down to win, you know, and and it's it's gone so far in that direction, and I really think uh, you know your campaign could be a breath of fresh air, and. and Revitalize that spirit, so that, that's
2: that's exciting. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, I appreciate it's really it. exciting. Yeah, absolutely I wanted to just ask you one more um, if there was any update on um, on uh, Sirhan's release or if you had any because I know you had, you had met with him a few years ago and I Thought that was an incredibly courageous thing and you know what's happened to him in recent years. Yeah
1: um, No, I I think he now because the the parole board before the parole board recommended his release this time around, the parole board uh, recommended against it, and so he really lost an opportunity. And now I don't think they consider it again for about three years. So New- Governor Newsom had an opportunity, right? To he, uh, he was he was uh, you know not legally obligated to, but legally, it was th- the parole board recommended to him that he release, and uh, Governor Newsom did not release. Um, he made that decision. Uh, I don't know, you know. Um, I don't know what will happen to him.
2: Yeah, because I think he just his brother's still around, and they're both elderly. I think pushing eighty at this point, and yeah, they just want to live together. And a lot of the stuff I know about that case is, of course, from Lisa Pease's great work in uh, "A Lie Too Big to Fail." I think yeah, Lisa Pease did an amazing
1: job on that book.
2: Yeah, sure. A lot of her work really convinced me that it wasn't.
1: Sirhan that actually yeah. I mean if you look, the, the thing that convinced me I mean, I always assume Sirhan killed my father. I always assumed from when I was a little kid that my uncle that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald whoever killed my uncle that it was part of a conspiracy that there were and that's what Congress concluded when they investigated it, you know in the 70s uh, in fact when I was the, the day after my uncle was shot or, you know, I guess oh, it was actually when, when we were waking him in the East Room of the White House. Um, so his, his coffin was lying in the East Room of the White House, and we were in the White House, and I was standing next to my mother and my Aunt Jackie. And Lyndon Johnson came in and said that, uh, that Lee Harvey Oswald had been shot and killed. And I said and he said there was a man, you know named Jack Ruby who did it and I said to my mother and Jackie I said did he love our family? Did Jack Ruby love our family? Oh, so Even then and now as of course it turns out Jack Ruby was a mobster Who was working for the same people that the CIA had recruited to you know to kill Castro? You know, Carlos Marcello and Santos Traffic He doing and-
2: gun running too, I think. He'd he was doing gun, gun running
1: on. to Cuba. And, you know, he's an interesting guy because he then tried to tell the truth. Yeah. And he came clean. He had you know, a, at the end, but Dorothy Caldwell and they the wouldn't one... move him. He said, please move me to a safe place out of Texas. And I want to testify in front of the Warren Commission, but you need to move me. And they wouldn't allow him to talk. Yeah, and he
2: died a few years later in, like, yeah. 67 of cancer or something like that. Yeah. yeah after being. Uh, but, it,
1: but when I heard that, I was like, well, why would he kill you know, my uncle's killer, he must have loved my family. So then one of the more I found out, my father then found out, you know, looked at, he asked Walter Sheridan, who was his, uh, you know, his kind of investigator. He was a former FBI G-man, and he worked for my father, was very loyal to him, and he got quietly asked, when Jim Garrison was investigating the, the assassination, my father was walking through the National Airport one day and saw all these magazines on a rack with Jim Garrison's picture on them. And he was with Frank McElwitz at that time, who was his press aide. And he, he pointed to him and he said, do you think Garrison has anything? And Frank McElwitz said, I don't know. And, um, and he said, will you ask Walter? My dad said, we asked ask Walter to quietly look into it? So Walter Sheridan went down to Louisiana and he and he went to Dallas, and he got a hold of of, Lee, of uh, Jack Ruby's phone records. In the week before Jack Ruby, you know, the week before the assassination, and Jack Ruby's phone records there were like six hundred calls, and almost all of them were people that my father had indicted. Wow! Or who had relationships <laughs> to people who were indicted from the Marcella mob, from the. Traficante and Giancana, you know, the Chicago uh, mob. So so my father at that point, my father did not understand the, uh, because this information did not come out until later, but he didn't understand the close relationship between the CIA and the mob. At that point he was thinking, oh, this must have been a mob hit, and they were angry at me for prosecuting the mob, and that's why they killed my brother. So it was kind of devastating for him. But he didn't understand that the, that the mob and the CIA were essentially one organization. Working together a lot of the times. Anyway, I always assumed that he, you know, my uncle was killed by a, by a group. And I always assumed that Sir, my father was just killed by Sir Ann and Sir Ann was a lone gunman. And then Paul Schrade, who was the United Auto Workers leader who got shot that night in the head, he took the first bullet and, and went down, but then he survived. And he, in fact, I'm going to his funeral tomorrow. I'm oh, sp- wow. I mean, his service. Yeah. T- tomorrow, and I'm speaking at his service. Paul Schrade made me come to his house and then sat me down with the autopsy report and basically forced me to read it. And you know, once I read that report, I was okay. This guy could not have killed my father. Because Surhan fired two shots toward my father before he was grabbed. One of those shots hit the door jamb behind my father. The first shot he hit Ball straight in the head. The second shot hit a door jamb behind my father and was later removed by the LAPD. Then he was grabbed by Rosie Greer and Rayford Johnson and six other men in a dog pile and the first thing they did was to hit, take his arm and point it away from my father. But they said he had, Rafer said, he had superhuman strength. He's this little guy. Right. He had superhuman strength, and they couldn't get the gun out of his his hand, and he mechanically fired it six more times in that direction. And all of those shots away from my father hit people. Oh, there were five people hit. One of them was hit twice. So we know what happened to all of his shots. He had eight shots in his gun, and he never reloaded. The audio shows 13 13 shots being fired. My father, Surihan, was always five and a half feet in front of my dad. My father was killed by four shots. He was shot four times. One of the shots went harmlessly through the shoulder pad of his his jacket. But the three shots that killed him were all contact shots. So they were, this is what the autopsy says, with Thomas Noguchi was the greatest coroner in American history said um, that of all of those shots, the gun was either touching my father's clothing or skin or it was within an inch of them. And because there were carbon tattoos that accompanied them, Sirhan was never behind my father. Sirhan was always in front. There were 77 eyewitnesses and the guy who was behind him, holding him, was Eugene Thainsaser who was a security guard who worked for Lockheed and before that Boeing had top secret clearance. He was a CIA guy and he had gotten that job as security guard three days before. And he's the one who steered, grabbed my father by the elbow. My father was not supposed to go through the Ambassador Hotel kitchen. He steered him through the kitchen to the ambush and, you know, where Sir Ann was waiting and then um, he had his own gun pulled, which there are a dozen witnesses, and he admitted. He even said that. Yeah, he fell to the floor yeah, and had. My his father own. fell back on him, and my father must have known he was being shot from behind because he turned, and pulled off uh, Caesar's clip on tie. Caesar had made public statements. He hated my family. He thought my fam- You know, my father was. If my father was elected, he was going to give the country away to
2: blacks. This is what he said. Right, probably. he made statements like that. And then he tried to get twenty five thousand dollars out of you to go to the Philippines yeah. through Dan tra- Bordea. Yeah. I, I read that. that I, yeah. That's unbelievable.
1: I you know, I was I wanted to talk to him. And, and so then his uh, his liaison was Dan, who's you know, who wrote this actually fantastic book. It Dan was a uh, he was a police reporter and he was a really good reporter. And he wrote a book, and if you read that book, you just say, you read the entire book, and you're saying, okay, Sirhan definitely killed Robert Kennedy. And then the last chapter, he says, oh, oh, by the way, when I talked to Sirhan, I looked into his eyes, and I could tell he was lying, so I know he, he killed Robert Kennedy. Oh, it was like one of these things where the whole time he builds this impeccable, impervious case. And then the last time he pivots, it just in the last switches. Time. So it's like somebody yeah. talked to him or something.
2: Yeah, could be. And so
1: when I wanted to talk, I I got in touch with Cesar through him. And he said, "Okay, if you give up ten thousand dollars, Cesar will talk to you." And I said, "Okay." And then when we got close to me coming to, to the event where i was going to fly to the philippines he said it's twenty-five thousand now and then i i just the whole thing seemed like a scam and so i uh i i didn't do it and then Caesar died about a year ago
2: yeah i remember that i remember seeing that in the news yeah,
1: yeah.
0: well that's what we got for time today but uh Mr. Kennedy, I wish you all the luck on the campaign. Eric, thanks and, for having me. I'm just so excited to see where it goes and what you do, and, and it's going to have a big impact. So uh, folks at home, thanks for watching, and please subscribe to this channel, and uh, check out Bobby Kennedy Jr. for president. It's going to be an exciting primary, and a lot of great things will be happening. So thanks for tuning in. Mike, thank, thank you. you.
2: Mr. Kennedy, thank yeah. you. It's an honor.